If you haven't been here the last few weeks, you will not know that we're currently in a talk series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which is based on a book that I don't have, but I have read it, I promise. Um, and the book has the same name. It's by this guy called Pete Scazzaro. Can I encourage you, if you haven't read it, it genuinely is good. It is quite confronting, but in like a easy to read, digest type of way. So do go and read it. But the premise of our talk series has been that, yes, emotionally, see right there. I didn't make that. Still there. And um, so the premise of our talk series has been that for most of us, much of our church experiences have emphasized the importance of our spiritual and our intellectual well being. And these things are good, they're always good. But we haven't necessarily experienced a lot of, um, or to the same measure of, a talk about our emotional health. And so we have spent the past few weeks discussing how we can better understand and engage with our emo emotional selves and how we can come to God as we, we really are. So spiritually, intellectually, physically, sexually, and emotionally inv in, in, alive, involved. And this evening, I want to spend some time thinking about grief. Yes. Come on. We can do it. We can do it together. We can think about grief together. Um, and so I'm actually really encouraged by the words that were just shared even, because actually I feel like God is speaking to us already, that we can come to him with our emotions, we can come to him with our grief, we can come to him with our pain, we can trust him. So the thing I'm encouraged by is that whatever I have to say, God, God is the one that can do it. God is the one that can stand with us through it. He's the one that can walk us through it. Um, so I'm trusting him this evening that as I keep speaking, actually the thing that you can be doing in your own heart and mind is coming to God and speaking about your own grief and trusting that he's the one that's going to do it. It's got nothing to do with the wisdom I'm going to share or Pete Scazzaro, to be clear. Read his book. Um, the grief process is fascinating and really important for us to consider because it's actually something that we all experience a lot more regularly than we think we do. Obviously, grief is most kind of classically associated with when we lose someone that we're really close to. Um, but what will hopefully become clear this evening is that we actually experience grief whenever we lose something. All psychological models and theories on grief universally recognize that people respond to loss in an enormous variety of ways. And the weight and kind of magnitude of loss will be different for all of us. Because we all kind of have our own individual grief reflexes, if you will. And they're really, really molded by our experience of family, our experience of watching our parents have emotions, our experience of what our parents told us was okay and not okay to feel. Um, and it also can be influenced by what we've already experienced. So it can be triggering. Some grief can be more triggering than other grief. So in some sense, grief actually involves kind of all the stuff we've spent five, six weeks talking about, all of it in a massive melting pot, that's grief. We need all of it to get through it. So there's a lot to talk about, and I want to say from the beginning that I'm not going to say it all. So first, what actually constitutes loss? What do we grieve? What emotions are involved? And how does God respond to our pain? As I just mentioned, we actually accumulate lots of losses throughout our lives. Death is 
obviously a devastating loss, whether it's the premature death of a friend, a spouse, a child or a parent, or the elderly death of a grandparent. But there are also other losses that are kind of harder for us to categorize. A friend of many years betraying you, emotional or sexual abuse, divorce, a cancer diagnosis, infertility, miscarriage, watching a war from very far away, watching the pain that they're going through and navigating, that's making me feel pain and I'm not even there. Finding out that your role model of many years is corrupt. Graduating university even, and suddenly being like, I've got to get a job and I'm an adult and I have no kind of sense of even educational ground anymore. Nothing's gonna hold the bottom of me. Learning to compromise your own emotions in a relationship, whether that's friendship, whether that's um, a kind of romantic relationship, we're compromising our emotions, we're having conversations about our emotions, that can be grief bringing. Your body not working with the same ease as, as it used to, because you're getting older, things feel a bit more difficult. Your career dreams not going to plan. Breaking up with your first teenage love. We all had them, mine was called James. <laughs> I genuinely thought I was going to marry him. That the teenage love is so intense. Sorry, Brandon. I did marry you in the end. Um, but when considering grief, the most important issue is not kind of cal not spending all of our time calculating like, is this really enough to feel grief? Is it is it big? Is it small? Does it constitute this emotion? Is this emotion stupid? Actually, we shouldn't really spend any time working out where on the continuum grief is, because actually it all matters. All of our pain, big or small, it all matters to us, and it all matters to God. And it even matters when we're complicit in it. Because if we're honest with ourselves, there are also things that we grieve that are directly in kind of relationship with things that we do, that we don't even want to do, or things that we regret doing. But the overarching point is, loss is loss is loss is loss. It's all loss. And losses cause us to feel pain. Um, in the first of his Narnia Chronicles, the magician's nephew, C.S. Lewis tells this story of a little boy named Diggory whose mother is dying. And when Diggory first encounters this like majestic lion, he desperately kind of presents his request to God about his mum. And he says this in the book, may I please, will you give me some magic fruit from this country to make my mother well? He had been desperately hoping that the lion would say yes. He had been horribly afraid that he might say no. But he was taken aback when he did neither. Aslan appears to ignore his request completely. And I think in the midst of our suffering, the most important question that we can be left with is, does God actually care? Our uncertainty around this can cause us to question whether God really is good, whether he's loving, whether he's powerful, whether he's even fair. Where are you, God? Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? In times of grief, arguably more than any other time, we ask questions. And we doubt that we actually have a relationship with God at all. And I want to say from the beginning, we have said this throughout this kind of series, but I want to say from the beginning that as Christians, 
we live in the tension that there really isn't any definitive answer to our suffering. The kingdom is now. We see foretastes of heaven breaking in, physical resurrection, healing, answered prayer in the Bible, in Christian history. Right now, we see all of those things. And for that reason, we kind of keep praying. We keep seeking after them. But at the same time, the kingdom isn't yet. Pain is a reality. Suffering is real. Some prayers are left unanswered. The story of the magician's nephew continues and sweet, sweet, sweet Diggory strikes up the courage to come towards Aslan again and ask him another question. And he says this. This is what he says in the book. He thought of his mother and he thought of the great hopes he had had and how they were all dying away. And a lump came into his throat and his tears fell, fell, uh, filled his eyes and he blurted out, but please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up until then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws that he had on them. And now, in his despair, he looked up to his face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down very near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were so big, so bright compared with Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was. And this is the love of God. God is concerned with your pain. God is not intimidated by your anger or your uncertainty or your questions. God knows your hopes. He has heard your prayers. And we come to God with the depth of our pain because in the midst of the doubting and the reality of the brokenness and in the presence of our suffering, and Jesus comes to us with his face and he rages against it and he cries with us and he weeps and he comforts us. And of course, this is not simply the experience of Lewis's fictional character, Diggory, although very good story. The Bible also has countless examples of God's closeness amongst our grief. So let me read you Psalm 42. It's very, it's a classic. In fact, we just sung some of its words. I did ask Nikki to, to sing the last song. Um, and I wanted us to do that so we were already singing it. We were already experiencing what these words really can mean for us and what we're experiencing as well as what David writes. So this is Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will, set, I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. My soul is downcast within me, Therefore, I will remember you. 
from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep. That's also something that we sung today. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. So it's quite like declaratory, feeling lots of emotions of grief. Oh, he really is my God, but also he's forgotten me. And um, some of you may be familiar with the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she's called. She published a really famous model on grief in 1969. And essentially what she suggests is that we experience so many emotions when we grieve and we navigate kind of all these stages of grief, namely a process of denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. I'm going to say dabda for short because I'm not going to say that every time. And what she says is that being aware of these elements of grief and kind of engaging with them isn't like a tick list. It's not like done anger, on to bargaining, done bargaining, on to depression, you know, know, until we get to acceptance. It's not a tick list. We can't really do it in an orderly, orderly fashion. That's not how grief works. So we will do what David did in this psalm. We will swing back and forth. I've accepted it. God is who he says he is. I've not accepted it. I'm feeling angry again. I've accepted it. He's the king. I've not accepted it. He's forgotten me. We will do that over and over again until, yes, we process it. We accept it. We come back to him. But what Dabda tells us is that to healthily grow, we actually have to allow ourselves to honestly process this. And this is something that the psalmists, as I've mentioned, knew all about. I mean, two-thirds of the psalms are laments. Two-thirds of these songs are like, I'm going to come and complain to God about what I'm going through, and I'm going to be mad, or I'm going to be sad, or I'm going to be angry, or I'm going to be anxious. And the writers use really visceral imagery. I mean, we just read some of it. Let me just highlight some of Psalm 42 again to remind you. David swings back and forth from making declarations about who God is. I remember you. I'll pour out my soul. I will yet praise him to desperately begging him to do something and doubting whether God is there. Have you forgotten me? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me. Where is your God? And something that's really interesting for us to know about the way these psalms are written is that memory played a particularly important role in the life of Israel. And kind of remembering what God has done appears more than 350 times in the Old Testament. But it's kind of a bit different to our modern day understanding of memory. For Israel, memory didn't just mean bringing to mind a set of feelings or facts about a previous experience. Memory wasn't, you know, flicking through Instagram when we went to Land's End. It wasn't sitting with our grandma looking through photos of when we went to Lanzarote when we were a kid. A call to remember something 
was a call to also have an action. There was like motion behind it. So to remember God, to say, I remember God and all that he's done, was to simultaneously declare, I commit my life to him. I believe that he's good. I believe that he's faithful. So it was kind of a, a, an action towards your devotion. So when David says, these things I remember in verse 4, kind of what he's saying beneath that that we don't hear is, I believe amidst my current pain and suffering that God is who he says he is, that he's good, and that he's faithful. So he's kind of saying a lot all at once. But then let us take note of how the verse continues leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. So David is worshipping, is remembering God, is being very honest about his suffering with God in this psalm, in the company of other people. He's not on his own. And that's really, really important for us. Because Israel were God's people. They weren't a person. They weren't an individual. They were together. They were as one. They were a people, a collective, a body. And obviously, we live in the reality of all that Jesus has done. So we can come to God in our individual, intimate experiences of Jesus. We have to keep doing that. That's really important. But each of us is not only adopted as a child of his. We are adopted into a family. We remain a body. The vision of Israel is still the same. It's just been fulfilled in what Jesus has done. So the power of us remembering together who God is, is really important when we grieve. It's really important when we're feeling hard emotions. And this is what the Psalms do. They're communal laments, communal praise, communal thanksgiving. And you may notice that when we sing worship together, both in the mornings and in the evenings, if you're to pay attention, the first couple of songs are often the language or the, the songs that we use are declaring who God is. We start there. So <clears throat> we declare, he's a good, good father. He's a strong God. He has been my strong tower. Um, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the, you know, I'm just trying to think of things now. You're the king of kings. <laughs> Um, you're in control. So we sing these songs where we're declaring this is who he is and we don't really talk about our emotions at all in those first two songs. It's all about this is who he is, whatever I feel. I'm just going to remember together. We're all going to do it together. We're going to remember this is God. And we do that because we believe there is power in remembering that God is who he says he is and that worshipping together is a place of memory. And together it's easier to call to mind what is so easy to forget when we're on our own, especially when we're experiencing pain. It's really easy to forget that God is good when we're in pain, but when we're together and we hear other people sing it, we remember that despite our pain, he is good, and in our pain, he will meet us. And so as I come to a close this evening, I want us to ask one final question. What happens when we remember who God is? I think what happens is that we're 
we become more and more able to be really honest with him. Because if he is who he says he is, and when we remember that he is who he says he is, he's a good father, he knows me, he loves me, he wants to be close to me, he doesn't want me to be in pain, he didn't send this thing to cause me suffering. When we remember that these things are true about him, then we're like, he is the person I must go to. He is the person I can be honest with because he is exactly who I need when I feel pain. Um, a few months ago, uh, a few months ago, a few months after I became a Christian, I was at dinner with some people and across the table from me was the vicar of the church that I'd become a Christian in and this church member who I'm going to call an elder, we don't really do elders, but a key member of the church and I had just become a Christian. And during the dinner, the vicar asked me about my current experience of prayer. So he was like, what's going on? Like, how do you pray? How are you connecting with Jesus? Let's talk about that. And if you know me, this is classic me. But if you don't know me, here's a little invitation into classic Alice. I immediately decided to tell them a very intimate story about (laughs) how I was praying. (laughs) So I, the week before, had had um, a really, really emotional day and was like navigating some really traumatic stuff that was coming up. And I decided to go on a run, which is already classic me, because don't feel the emotion as soon as they come up. Try and sweat them out. Then maybe you can feel the emotion afterwards. So I was on a run, and I had this visceral physical experience where as I was running, I could feel anger like radiating up my whole body and like, like creating this big expanse in my chest. Like it was like I could literally, which is interesting seeing as you told your, said your word actually, Nikki, because that was very much my experience. I was running and I suddenly felt like I could literally roar. I am so angry. There was so much anger inside of me. So I basically get to the depths of the park where I can't see anyone and I do it. I scream as loud as I can. I let it all out. But the reason I'm telling this story to this vicar at the time is because I just find it funny now, but in the midst of that rage, I really, really hardly kick a tree. And I really, really hurt myself. (laughs) So not only am I like scream, praying, angry, sweating, I now have what I think is a broken foot, which is just could not be more classic Alice. Like, I find myself in these situations. But I was also, as you can imagine, in the middle of being in pain, praying, screaming, not saying very PG PG prayers, lots of swearing, you know, lots of being really honest about where I was at. So back to the dinner, the vicar. I I tell them all of this, and I, like tell them details about little things I was saying and like because I just basically wanted the laugh I basically wanted the laugh um and by I told them everything I mean everything all the language that I used what I was praying about bear in mind I've just become a Christian so I have no idea that this is not really maybe the context to just you know blurt out all of this and right as I'm finished I'm thinking these guys are going to absolutely lose it about me breaking my foot in prayer. This is great. So I'm like gearing up to it. But during gearing up to this, I catch the guy, the elder's eye. 
and he is so shocked. And he is so like, he is so in shock that I would speak to God like that. And he looks, in the most British way I can explain, like all of his bones are fused together. He was so shocked that I would say any of this in the presence of Jesus. And I immediately began to feel those like really shallow, anxious breaths, like, I'm just going to back out of this one, guys. (laughs) No idea what I've done wrong here, but apparently this isn't what people do at church. Um... And in the same moment, so I'm like starting to get really anxious, like, oh, I don't really know how to like reconnect with these people, oh gosh. And in that same moment, John, the church leader, bursts out laughing like this roaring laugh and just goes, immediately puts his hand on my shoulder and says, just keep going with that. God isn't scared of your anger. He'll meet you in it. And then he like paused for a moment and he said, the more you give it to him, the more you can be filled with his spirit and the more you'll be healed. And the reality is, emotions that are considered negative or language that's considered negative, (laughs) anger, sadness, sadness, disappointment, hurt, all of which are involved in very, very, very healthy grief have often been represented in a church context as either quite unspiritual Or for some of us, I know, for example, for Brandon, this would be the case in his church experience, like unspiritual, even as far as sinful. Like we can't feel these emotions too much because they aren't in line with who God really is. And the shocked leader, in my experience, is such a tame example of that. I know that lots of us have felt in church that we can't have the emotions that we really have. And... To be clear, me recounting that story is not me saying that that is like necessarily the best way to process grief, but it just was the way I was, and that was okay. What I am saying is that whatever your emotional response, whatever words you use, whatever decibel your voice reaches, however many times you cry in despair, God wants to know about it. He's not offended because you're his and he loves you. So we must try to walk away from any experience of church or theology that's told us directly or indirectly that denying our emotions or refusing to acknowledge the pain is more spiritual. And what I actually didn't tell the vicar that that night um, was that after my short, shouty, sweary praying episode, I actually fell to the ground on my knees and cried for a while in the middle of the park. I mean, I have no idea whether anyone saw me, I didn't care. Because actually underneath all of that anger I was experiencing was pain, was sadness. And as I knelt on the ground, I had this experience of God drawing close to me. And obviously this is subjective, but in my memory, my experience of it was that I actually physically felt in the park, in Hyde Park, random place that I'd never been to before, that God was physically cradling me. I felt like a baby in his presence. And I could physically feel warmth. And there was heaviness all over my body. I just knew he was holding me. And this is the love of our Father in heaven. And after a few minutes of him 
holding me and loving me and listening to me and cradling me. The thing I felt like he said to me, not necessarily audibly, but I just knew he was saying it to me was, you can give it to me. Let me take the pain from you. So we went through this process of me kind of just being on my knees, feeling him hold me. Okay, you can take this next thing. You can take this other thing that I'm thinking about. So I was giving him like gifts, not very nice gifts in my opinion, <laughs> but he receives them lovingly and kindly. And it's important for me to note that sometimes this stuff can be healed in an instant. I actually have seen people who have got prayed for and then they look genuinely like a new woman or man afterwards. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> like they physically look like, wow, you, there's something that's come off of you. Like there's a weight that's come off of you. But sometimes healing is a process which is actually closer to my experience. Coming back to God again when it comes up and just allowing him to do that little bit that day. But as I walked home that day with my hobbly, hurty, hurty, hurty foot, I did feel that some of that inward pain, not necessarily outward pain, the inward pain had left me. <laughs> um, and as I have come back to Jesus again and again and again, my pain has become lighter and lighter. And in the process of feeling freer, I felt more filled with his life, more filled with his spirit, more able to drink his living water, which I've come to realize, and I'm sure many of you have too, is the love that none of us can actually live without. That's the stuff we need to be filled with. Because it's what each of us are made for, and it's the only thing that will make us whole. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, I can't remember where it is actually, I should have written it down, is um, that he will pay back all the years the locusts have eaten. And I know it sounds a bit weird, but the reason why I love it so much is because it communicates that somehow in God's power, he can mysteriously pay us back for things that are unpayable, unpaybackable. By his love, he can see our pain and he doesn't disregard it and he doesn't not heal it and he doesn't not meet us in it, but somehow he promises us that he will pay us back for the stuff that has been stolen that is not our fault for it being stolen from us. He can pay us back in a way that other people can't pay us back for things. And so I think that's what I am believing he wants to do this evening. That for so many of us, we have experienced people stealing or something stealing things from us. And what he's saying is, well, I can pay that back. In the mystery of my Holy Spirit and my power, I can pay back a thing that nobody else can pay back. And the other verse that also comes to mind is actually something that Chris said earlier, which is where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So right there where the spirit is, that's where we, that's where we find, that's where we experience freedom. So I feel like that's the other thing he wants to do this evening for us, is to give us, to ex enable us to experience again freedom. Freedom from the things that make us feel tied down or our hands feel tied together or our, our heart feeling completely like ambushed by pain and fear and sadness. Um, 